So this is the parasha. This is the biggest insight from the parasha. This is the parasha where we learn that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. This is the parasha where Isaac says to Esau, Esau, go and make me some of that really good food that I love so that my soul will bless you. <laughs> Isn't that... So I just thought that was kind of funny. So the way to... In this case, the way to Isaac's heart was through his stomach. You know, when Esau got that tasty food, them tasty vittles like Isaac loved, then he was just in that mood to give Esau the blessing. But Jacob got the blessing because he brought him some of him, Isaac's wife's Rebecca's food. So I want to I talk about some cool Hebrew word pictures from this parsha that really kind of bring it to life for me, talk a couple, and also talk about a couple of the major themes that I think are applicable to us on a personal level as a faith community and also as a movement. The, you know, the Messianic Jewish thing is a movement. And there's some things in here that are very relevant. Um, you know how we've been having these scripture discussions at the table over Oneg, over fellowship meal? And can anyone remember what those are called in Hebrew? A midrash, that is correct. That verb is actually in this parsha. And the verb form is actually drosh. Can we all say drosh? Okay, so let's have a look at that. It's where Rebecca is puzzled over what's going on inside of her. She doesn't totally understand it, and she needs an answer. So uh, in chapter 25, verse 22, it says, But the children dashed themselves against each other within her, and she said, If it's so, then why am I this way? So she went to drosh Yahweh. She went to inquire of Yahweh. So that's, one, that's a wonderful Hebrew word. When he talks about going to seek him out, when it talks about inquiring of him, like David, he said, okay, stop everything. Before we take another step with our military strategy, we're going to, what? Inquire of Yahweh. Uh, there are lots of examples of that through scripture, and that's this word, drosh. And it means like to really seek something out thoroughly, to go on a hunt to find it, to dig deep like you're digging to find buried treasure. That's kind of the feeling, eh? And that's what we do when we talk about the word together. We're going on a treasure hunt together. We're going on a hunt to find uh, like startling truths and uh, applicable, ac applicable teachings. So I, I really like that word there, and that's the root of the word drosh. Can we all say drosh? And when we're all droshing together, what do we call that, the noun form? A midrash, that is correct. Okay, there's another really cool one here. Um, there's a word picture in Hebrew for life. When we say life, I don't know, what, what does that conjure up in your mind? I, I, yeah, for me it conjures up tears there because she just seems so alive sometimes. She's always kicking her little arms and legs, you know? It probably means something different to each one of us. The Hebrew word for life is chaim. Can we all say chaim? Right, like for instance, you know the classic Jewish toast is lachaim, isn't it? To life, so you know it from that. And the word picture for life comes from this parasha when they're looking for water, and they find water in chapter 26, verse 19. It says, But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, and then, of course, they have a quarrel about it. The word there, flowing water, is maim. Maim is water. Everybody say maim. Maim chaim. It's a rhyme. Maim chaim. So somebody tell me, what is maim? Water. What is chaim? 
Yes? So therefore, Mayim Chaim means what? Living water, that's correct. In, in this case, it literally means flowing water. So that's the Hebrew word picture for life. When you're talking about life in Hebrew, you're talking about cool, refreshing, life-giving, flowing water. And likewise, when you're talking about water in Hebrew, you notice how the Master was telling a lot of parables in today's Parsha? Well, when you're talking about water in Hebrew, let's say in a parable, you're alluding to life. So that's a really basic thing that we can remember every day. When you, when you pour yourself a glass of water and you take that first drink, remember that that's the picture of life. That's the picture of what Yeshua came to bring to each one of us. And I don't know about you, but I mean, I, I wake up some days in the morning and I feel really parched on more than just a physical level. I mean, I'm always parched physically. I wake up in the morning and I run for the, run for the tap, you know, really. But on a deeper level, you know, there are times in life when we feel spiritually dry, when maybe our hearts don't feel very alive, and it's just a cool reminder every day when we take a drink of the gospel of Messiah, that he came to bring the living water to our spirit. And he, thankfully, too, he didn't come to just bring a little sip each day, or ration amounts. We remember in, in Yochanan, in John chapter 7, he said that, you know, when we're thirsty, and when we come to him and believe in him, then something is going to come gushing out of our bellies. Rivers of something. Living water. Living water. Rivers of Maim Chaim are going to come gushing out of our bellies. And I assume that means it'll be more than enough for just us to get by. It's enough to refresh the people around us, to, to be life-giving to our families and our communities, and people we meet in the workplace. So that's a really cool teaching behind that concept of flowing water. And the last one, the last Hebrew word that I wanted to uh, point out here that's really cool is in chapter 28, verse 3. It's a promise to Yaakov, to Jacob. And this is uh, Yitzchak, Isaac, his father, talking. And he says, May El Shaddai, my almighty God, bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. Now, does the company in that context mean uh, a corporation or a business? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It means a congregation. The Hebrew word there is kahal. May you become a kahal of peoples. And we were talking about that. That's the word that's translated church in the New Testament in most Christian uh, translations. And uh, the word there for peoples is amim, so the phrase is kahal amim. Can we all say kahal amim? That was the promise that Jacob and his descendants would become. God's people are a kahal amim. In other words, they're like, there's this multicultural, many languages kind of connotation there. It's a church of many peoples. And it's just, for me anyway, it gives me this broad vision of the kingdom and of us as God's people. You know, Sometimes, I think when people think in, of unity, they think of uniformity. Well, unity means we all do things the same way, we all sound the same way, and therefore we're, we're one. But that's not actually, I believe, the scriptural definition of unity. The scriptural idea of it is something deeper. That we are a congregation, yes, we're a, like a unified congregation, but we're many peoples. There's room there for diversity. But there's still that root uni unity in the essentials, and I think Messiah is the essential. So that's kind of what I get out of that. There's uh, two cool pictures in here for, for uh, family life also. In uh, chapter 25, verse 21, there's this cool picture of a husband praying for his wife. And I guess his prayers were pretty powerful too because the father heard Isaac's prayers for Rebekah and he enabled her to conceive. 
And I, I want to share with you guys something cool from Genevieve's in my own life also, already. Um, at the beginning of our marriage, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to have children due to some medical issues. And it looked like we probably wouldn't be able to. And there's this time when we came to this parasha, and I happen to know an ancient Jewish legend about this parasha based on the Hebrew text and the way it reads. It says, Isaac prayed to Yahweh on behalf of his wife, but it actually in the Hebrew it says, Isaac like entreated Yahweh. It's this really special word for serious prayer. And it says he entreated Yahweh across from his wife. So the, the Jewish tradition says that this was a very serious time of prayer when Isaac and Rebekah went to Yahweh together and they got down on their faces, facing each other, but towards him. And just on their faces, they just cried out to him together with one voice. And their prayers were answered. And so Genevieve and I actually did that. We read this parsa and, and we did that. And uh, it was very special. I think it was within a month after we prayed like that, that the father enabled us to have a baby. And we had tears. And I just praise him for that. It's, uh, so this, this, pa this passage for that reason is very, very special to me. And it's a great inspiration for husbands also to pray for their wives. And hopefully not just about the major issues in life. Hopefully also the, the minor stuff also. Um, there's, a little, there's a little paradox in here. And I like this paradox. You remember several weeks ago, we were reading about Sarah. And right after Abraham's circumcision, Yahweh comes in this like form that we can't seem to figure out, the multiple person form to Abraham. And it says very clearly in the Hebrew, you remember, there were some little dots over the word to him. Yahweh says to Abraham very clearly, Sarah, your wife is going to have a baby. And we were asking ourselves, why did, why did he tell that to Abraham instead of to Sarah? I mean, Sarah is the one who's dreamed about this, who's deeply desired it. Why, did, why didn't he tell Sarah? And of course, you know, we discovered the answers to that a couple weeks ago. This is kind of cool because here we have the, the, other, the other side of the equation, though. Rebecca is a very spiritual woman. Um, she has made Yahweh her own personal God. And when she has a question, uh, something in life that she just can't figure out, she goes to him. And she asks him about it. And he answers her. He just gives her a clear answer. And I just think that is such a cool picture for every wife and for every mother. You can go to Yahweh for your family, and you can hear from him for your family. And he can give you strategic things to pray about. He can, he can give you very clear insights. Uh, you can pray for your children. Those prayers are powerful. And I just really appreciate that practical application. Because, I mean, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, these are our forefathers and our foremothers in the faith, hey? They're kind of like our national heroes. So the fact that this stuff happened in their lives indicates to us that it also happens in our lives. It's kind of cool how some things don't change like that. So I really like that. Um, I have a question. Have any of you ever had expectations of God and he didn't meet your expectations? Maybe you thought that something was going to be a certain way and things did not turn out as you had expected that they'd turn out? Yes. I, I, I've had times like that. I personally have found those times to be very frustrating, disillusioning, sometimes challenging to my faith because the God that I had envisioned or what I had hoped for just was not happening. And uh, that can often spark a real faith crisis. I think it's encouraging that our national heroes, like Rebecca, went through the same problems. She faced the exact same thing. Let, let's look at that together. Um, in chapter 25, verse 20, it says Isaac was 40 years old when he got married. And how many years did he have to wait before they had children? 
20 years. They, it's not like he prayed a month after they got married and then they had a baby. I mean, he prayed and they still had to wait 20 years. That's a long time. Maybe, maybe like God wasn't coming through for them. Maybe he wasn't meeting their expectations. Maybe they were considering just abandoning the faith. Who knows? Maybe those things were going through their mind. And then to top it all off, finally when Rebecca does conceive, it's just not what she thought it would be. Maybe she had some romantic ideas about pregnancy or something, I don't know. But the Hebrew is really violent. It says that literally the children were dashing themselves against each other in her womb. That's what it says there. Like, so they were like, they were just having at it in the womb, and she was just, she probably wasn't getting any sleep at night. She was probably frazzled, and uh, she just didn't know what was going on. Wow, if, God is, if this is God answering my prayer, you know, I just did not expect it to be this way. And uh, that, the, the Hebrew there kind of has the connotation. It's really hard to translate the Hebrew there. Different translations have in different ways. NAS says, if it is so, why then am I this way? And I just think there's, a, of course, a very personal application about that in our own lives. God is huge. He's way smarter than we are. He's very capable. And he just doesn't match your expectations sometimes. And sometimes I think we just have to accept that or come to grips with it or, or talk it through with a friend or whatever. But it's just something to be emotionally prepared for in life. I've discovered, I'm sure some of you have discovered that to even greater degrees than me. So that's meaningful. <laughs> and it's kind of cool too that when she had a question, she didn't just have to go off by herself and be plagued by that question or have it destroy your faith. She was actually able to go to God and God talked to her about it. And he gave her a really helpful answer. So may it be so for each of us also. Um, yeah. I wonder where she went to, Ron. Because I, I assume their tents didn't have closets, so she probably didn't get to go to her prayer closet, hey? There, I, I, I've heard in the Jewish tradition they say that she probably went to Melchizedek at Salem or to someone, some man of God like that, maybe some place of prayer. But it doesn't really say. Do you have, have you heard anything about that? Or? No? Okay. Thankfully, we can go to the throne in the spirit anytime, hey? Maybe that's just what she did. Yeah. Does that, you said in Hebrew it's sort of like, if this is so, why? Mm -hmm. Thank you, Tim. And uh, the Hebrew term Rebecca uses here is lama, why? 
So I guess we can all have our Lama talks with God at certain times also, hey? <laughs> That's a good point. If you're late in your pregnancy, you're not going to take big journeys to some mountain, hey? <laughs> That's a good insight for that, hey? Maybe she didn't go to Melchizedek or whatever. Yeah, one baby can do enough kicking and moving around in a womb to make a woman uncomfortable, hey? <laughs> I remember Genevieve going through that. Sometimes we'd even be sleeping at night and I'd feel Genevieve like, or uh, the baby kick right through Genevieve's tummy or whatever and wake me up. <laughs> uh, oh, one more thing about this. I think this is, this is something that applies on a national level also about the Messiah. Because as we know, each one of the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're pictures of Messiah. And I think maybe this is a picture that Messiah isn't going to measure up necessarily to the expectations of the people of Israel. Maybe we have theological assumptions about him or expectations about how he's going to come and through military might establish a kingdom and kick out the Romans, for instance. And maybe he just doesn't match our expectations. Maybe he won't match some people's expectations when he comes back either. Maybe he'll be more of a lion than what most people think when he comes back, hey? I've kind of wondered about that. Says he's going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. In other words, he's going to establish a global theocracy and he's going to be a dictator, a benevolent dictator, but a dictator nonetheless. I, I'm looking forward to that. That's part of our hope in Messiah. So maybe that won't match some people's expectations of like gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who exists to make me happy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> could it be? <laughs> so um, something I love about the Torah is how it's family history. It means that if you read the word, you must be part of the family. And Conversely, if you're part of the family, then you're going to read the word and it's going to mean something to you. Here's an interesting little section of family history about Jacob and Esau and their quest for the birthright. Now, maybe we should just ask ourselves for a moment, what is the birthright all about? Because it's a big theme, hey? I mean, Esau was the quintessential bad guy because he didn't appreciate his birthright. You know, he goes down in the annals of history as like the person you don't want to be like. You know, the book of Hebrews talks about that. Don't be like Esau. He, there was no place for him to repent. So why, why was this? What was so important about the birthright? Well, something you have to understand is in ancient times like this, people lived a, a, like more of a clan-based lifestyle. They functioned as a clan. They didn't have a democracy over the land of Canaan that took care of everyone, then administrated to everyone's needs, that provided uh, military protection or anything like that. These guys were like a little nation under themselves, basically. And somebody had to kind of be the person where the buck ultimately stopped. Someone had to be the main leader. And that person was the person with the birthright. If you had the birthright, then you would be groomed to eventually become the leader of the clan. If you had the birthright, then you would have a position of authority and you would also be very responsible for what happened in your extended family. In this case, you know, the extended family under Jacob who got the birthright was a lot of people, probably over a thousand. Um, therefore, the person who had the birthright would also get a double portion of the inheritance. 
he would get twice as much as everybody else. Why? Was it just because he was the favored one and he got special treatment? Well, actually, no. The reason was when you're in a position of leadership and you have more responsibilities, you also just need greater physical resources to accomplish your mission. Therefore, the guy with the birthright would also get the blessing. And uh, it's very notable here that Jacob wanted the birthright. On a practical application, this is one of the questions we can discuss over Oneg or whatever, when we have our Midrash time. What is the birthright in your life today? What is the birthright in our lives as a congregation? I have one very practical area that I think we could, we could keep in mind. Not only like as a group here, but as a movement uh, in, the, in the Messianic movement. The birthright here equals leadership, right? And Messiah has called each one of us to a place of leadership in his kingdom. Only it's not the type of leadership that the world often would call it or define it. You know, he, he's called each one of us to serve, to serve with all our hearts, you know, our families and the people in our, in our lives, etc. And he said, when you do that, you become a kingdom-defined leader. And that's a good thing. He also said, you know, our ultimate mission as a community of disciples is to go and what? Make more disciples. It's hard to make more disciples without becoming a leader to some degree. We see that in the life of Paul, right? He was able to say, like we talked about at our Rosh Chodesh celebration, follow me and imitate me as I follow the Messiah, as I imitate him. And I think that's an awesome life goal for each one of us, to, to, to excel so much in our personal discipleship to the Master, to so imitate Yeshua in the way he lived, in his devotion to the Father, in his meticulousness with which he kept the commandments, that we can eventually say to the next generation, Follow me as, as I'm following the Messiah. Imitate me as I'm imitating him. I mean, doesn't that sound a little arrogant? I mean, if someone was to say that to you, wouldn't it sound a little arrogant? I mean, I, st I, I think so. But Paul said it, therefore it must be okay. And it must be something that we can aspire to. So I know that's one of my personal life goals. And, uh, you know, all that to say, I really believe that the birthright of each one of us is to be a mover and a shaker in the kingdom to be someone who influences the people in our lives to follow the Messiah, to be someone who inspires others to imitate the Master in discipleship. That's your birthright. That's something to value. It's something to, to really cherish to a great degree. And I just think it's cool, too, that our birthright is, is not just to, like, follow the status quo. It's to set the status quo. It's not just to go along with the crowd. It's to inspire the crowd to go along with you as you go along with God. That's our birthright. Our birthright is to set the trend, not just go along with the trend. So I think sometimes, I, I've had a lot of exposure to the Messianic movement. Sometimes people are really gun-shy of the word leadership because some people have seen excesses in different churches they've been in. Some people don't think that there should be any type of leadership in, you know, in biblical church or whatever. Of course, I don't really see that in the Bible. But uh, because of that, Sometimes people really try and avoid that word, and I, I think it's a good word. I think it's part of our birthright. I think it's something that we should reclaim and uh, define scripturally and really, really aspire to because, as we discover here, this is our birthright as a movement. And I also believe on a really broad scale, this is like, I'm thinking here on a global level, okay? So this might not apply to each one of us individually right now, but the Messianic Jewish movement, I believe, has a birthright of leadership in the body of Messiah. Because we as a movement are such a clear picture of what the first century church was like. Really. Like, we look more like the first century church in many regards than anything that has been seen on the 
the scale of history for the last 16 or 1700 years. And so that is your birthright. And uh, that's our birthright as a congregation. And we're going to continue in that here in Prince Albert. And it's going to make a difference across our country. So let's just hold on to our birthright in that regard. Um, ooh, I love this one. Chapter 26, verses 12 to 35. Um, you know what? Sorry, uh, we'll go a little earlier. Just verse 5 for now. So Yahweh actually appears to Yitzchak, to Isaac, and he gives him, he repeats some of the promises that were made to Isaac's father. And he concludes by saying why all of this is happening. Why is Isaac getting these promises? Because, verse 5, Avraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my laws, and my teachings. So that's why all this was playing out. Maybe that still applies today in family dynamics. I think it does. And here's something cool. There are kind of two sections to this. Uh, firstly, he says, because Abraham... Okay, the New American Standard here says, obeyed me, but guess what it literally says? That's right. He listened to my voice. He shamad to my voice. So Abraham was a, a shamar. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, if we're, if, for those of us coming from a Christian background, this is the part we really have down, I think, pretty, pretty good. We really understand the concept of listening to God's voice, hearing from him personally, the personal relationship aspect, right? I mean, we're really strong on that. What sometimes I think we don't understand as much is the part that the next half of this verse has to play in our lives. Um, it says, Abraham didn't just obey his, like, listen to his voice. It says he kept my charge. And uh, that Hebrew term there has the connotation of a mission. Abraham accomplished the mission that I gave him. It has the connotation of, like, you're given a mission, and if you're not careful, you could forget about it or lose it. Therefore, you have to keep it. It has the connotation of you're given a mission, and you're going to come under attack, and the enemy is going to try and take that mission from you or dissuade you. So you need to guard it, like a bodyguard would, would guard his protectee. And uh, I think that's applicable to us. What's our mission? What are we called to guard? And then, uh, and then it gives a couple of specifics detailing the mission of Abraham, which I believe is also our mission. He talks about three areas. Firstly, he talks about commandments. The Hebrew word there is mitzvot. And again, that has the connotation of your mission. Um, talks about his laws. That word there is chukot. Can we all say chukot? That's basically like laws. And then the last one, New American Standard translates it as my laws, but the Hebrew word there is torot, which is the plural for guess what? Torah. Torah, that's correct. Abraham kept my Torahs, my teachings. What does that mean? It means that the Torah didn't just come about at the giving of the law on Mount Sinai in that generation. The Torah extended generations and generations back before that to Abraham, and generations and generations before that to Noah and to Adam. Let's stop and ask ourselves for a minute, who was the first person in the whole universe to celebrate the Sabbath? So Colin votes that it's God, Elohim. Did I hear anyone else say anything? Adam, yeah? Well, yeah, it's true. God was the first person in the universe to celebrate the Sabbath. And who is the second person? Adam, that is correct. Therefore, did the whole concept of the seventh day Sabbath on the weekly cycle, did that precede the law? Yes, it did. This was something that Noah, the progenitor of all humanity, celebrated. This was something that Abraham did. And the scripture proves it, for sure. So, you know, it just goes to say with this that, you know, Yeshua taught in John chapter 8 that if we're, the, if we're B'nai Avraham, the children of Abraham, 
then we're also going to act like he acted. We're going to do the stuff that he did. And, you know, basically from this we just get that there's, a, there's an element in our faith walk that's all about relationship with God and hearing from him personally. And there's also an element of just doing the stuff he said in his word. Just being obedient. And that's, those two items are what we're all about as a congregation. Okay, there's another really cool picture here of the Messianic movement in chapter 26, verse 15. One of the big themes in this parsha is wells. Um, in the Middle East, it can be really dry, and wells are so important. All of your life revolves around wells quite often. Battles are fought over water rights in the Middle East. Um, in both in ancient times and still today, there's tension between Syria and Israel over the Sea of Galilee and who gets rights to that water. So this is, this is something that continues. But we also learned that water is a picture of what? Life, that's correct. So there's something deeper going on here. Now, we have, we have a couple of main players here that we need to understand. Number one is Abraham. He is like the forefather, okay? Then we have Isaac. He is like the son. And in many regards, he's like us. Because just like Abraham was the father of Isaac, Abraham is the father of us. Okay? Then the third player in this story is the villain. We have the Philistines. The Philistines make their debut on the scene. And right away, they're just, they're just really bad guys. They're, uh, they're getting all jealous. They're giving Abraham and Isaac trouble. In verse 15, it says, Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. That's not a very kind thing to do, is it? That's downright hostile. So there, there are those Philistines. The, the modern, the modern uh, way of saying Philistines actually is Palestinian, interestingly enough. Um, then in chapter 18, it says again, Then Isaac dug again the wells of water, which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And what did he do? He gave them the same names which his father had given them. Now, this is actually a really big teaching, and I could, like, I could go over 2,000 years of church history to explain it. Unfortunately, we don't, we don't have the time for me to do that, because I could talk for an hour about this one teaching, because it's so relevant to us today, and what God is doing with us, and what he's going to do with us as a congregation. It's kind of like this. Abraham had a spiritual life. He had a covenant with God, and God made promises to him. Whether we are born Jewish and we are faithful to God or whether we are grafted in from the nations, we've been brought into that covenant, that well of water. We have become recipients of those promises, that, that living water, that life that, 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 uh, that motivated Abraham. And who is the villain in the story? The Philistines. What are the Philistines in church history? The Philistines in the Torah are like... They're the ultimate Gentiles, okay? You have these guys like the Edomites and Moab and Ammon. They all surround Israel, and they're hostile, but they're kind of distant relatives, right? You know, they descended from Abraham too, but then you have the Philistines who are also hostile in ancient Israel, and they were the total Gentiles. There was no relation to the people of Israel. They were like the farthest thing from the people of God you could imagine. They were your, like your ult ultimate atheistic humanistic culture, okay? That's kind of the idea. And... What are the Philistines in our faith life? Well, they're influences that want to infiltrate God's people and bring in like ways of thinking that aren't biblical, 
um, practices that are not from the scriptures, things that might even have anti-Semitic origins or roots that didn't come from Yeshua's practices that he modeled for us. All of these ideas would be kind of Philistine influences in the story, okay? And in church history, we've had a lot of that. There, there reached a point where, you know, the average expression of faith in Christ didn't look anything like the original first century expression. That had a very Jewish element that understood the role that the Old Testament is to play in the life of a believer, and, that, and they'll live that out. You know, so you have the first century believers, and as the centuries progress, the well of Abraham, our, our heritage in the people of Israel, the practices that Messiah modeled from the Hebrew Bible, Philistine influences, let's say, non-biblical stuff, Gentile stuff, it kind of started to come in and plug the whole thing up to the point where, you know, it just, we as a people, being children of Abraham really didn't mean anything to us anymore. You know, under, like the, the, uh, the fact that Jesus was Jewish didn't even compute, you know. And uh, I really believe that in this last generation or two, God has been inspiring his people around the world to go back to the ancient wells, the wells of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the original covenants, the promises made that still apply, and to, uh, to re-dig those wells out, to recover our biblical heritage, to ask ourselves, what, what biblically is the, what, what does the, the Torah, the first five books, what part do they play in our lives as believers? You know, so it's, it's, it's a really big theme, and it spans church history, but it's a really great picture also of what we're doing as a people. We're going back to those old wells, we're unplugging them, we're recovering what, what's been lost, and we're calling them by the same things that our forefathers did. That's why we love Hebrew. What did our forefather Abraham call God? Well, he called him Elohim, the Almighty. He called him Yahweh, the Eternal One. He called him El Shaddai, God Almighty. That's personally why I love using these terms. We're calling these wells by the same things that our forefathers did. Yeah, so um, those were the, the insights that I felt were really relevant for us as a group and where we're going. And I, I really hope that each one of you can take some of, some of that stuff home and find it applicable to daily life. And I know for me personally, realizing where the Father is taking us, realizing the vision that Messiah has for us as a congregation and also as a movement around the world, it really thrills me. It's exciting to be part of something that God is doing in our generation and that has a future. So uh, thank you. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.